Greetings and welcome to Office Hours. If you are new here and you want to learn a little bit more about what we do, head over to officehours.global. Our first hour, we answer your questions about digital and media and events of all kinds, digital productions. And our second hour is something that we want to spend a little bit more time on. And today we'll be speaking with Walesia Media project manager at aid program manager at AWS about digital project planning, how to deal with stakeholders and keeping your projects on track. So you want to stay tuned for the second hour. But until then, Bill, let's get into these questions. Absolutely, uh, Liberty. The first one comes to us from Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas, and he says, what are the pros and cons of using Canva for graphics in a Zoom session and what are the alternatives? Go ahead, Alex. I think the big pro that I talk to a lot when I talk to folks that are using Canva is the ease of use as well as the templates. The template system that they have is really deep, um, and they've got a lot of great templates there. I think that you still have more probably more for those of us who do really complex presentations. I think there's more tools inside of uh, Keynote to do very precise animations and, and certain things that we want, and there's tools like exporting in ProRes and other things that we want um, that don't that Canva may not have. But I think that um, if you're just trying to get stuff done that, that looks really nice and you're looking for lots of, and you want need lots of templates um, and uh, kind of pre-baked stuff, I think they do that really well. I completely agree with Alex. The templates are vast. So if you need to change anything out, you just have a lot of options on top of that workflow, workflow, workflow. So if you have a distributed team or there are a couple of people who are participating on the back end with the Zoom and there's a mistake that's made or something you all have in the cloud, uh, the ability to make those changes and seamlessly and it not impact what happens uh, for the, your audiences experience. So even just that simplicity there, I think that that makes Canva a, a great tool to use for your Zoom graphics. Next question. Next one comes to us from Alton Christensen in New York City, and he says, a note, Saturday's second hour on neurodiversity was exceptional. Fantastic content and presentation and office hours must see and has a link there to it for people who might have missed it. Exceptional is the word. Bill, go ahead. I heard exactly the same thing I mentioned before the show that my sister and I were talking on Sunday. We tend to have a weekly phone call just to catch up with family news. And that was the first thing she mentioned is that she saw the show on Saturday and was absolutely floored by the quality of the presentation and how much she learned uh, from that. So I think uh, it came to me through a back channel, the same exact thing you're saying. Excellent show on Saturday. Go ahead, Alex. Yeah, I feel like the Saturdays just keep getting better. I mean, we're really, you definitely want to keep watching that that space. Uh, I think the, the it's really opening my eyes to all the opportunities for us as content creators to create new services that are really focused on how to, you know, really support this audience um, and make sure, because I just don't feel like a lot of people have been doing it very well. And we're having some of the best in the business um, who are already doing it, uh, showing us, you know, where we're missing pieces of it. And I think this was just another one of the, you know, and it got, it keeps getting better. We've got ASL, we've got um, a lot of incredible new um, uh, panelists. So I would highly recommend checking out Saturday. 
Yes, it was exceptional is the word, like all the adjectives that you want to um, add on top of that. Alex, uh, sorry, Albert Kim was the one of the uh, main guest and just his storytelling and him sharing his background and the challenges that he had to overcome with just mental health. But then also this part of like, OK, being diagnosed and also being in an immigrant family and the issues that even come around that and how people people view you and there was so much vulnerability from the from the panel sharing their own stories you know John Edelson went into some stories so it was just a very it was we were given practical and tactical steps on how to embrace and understand those who are neurodivergent but then the uh, the sugar on top or the icing on top cherry on top there we go was having people all share their stories and people in our community so just a level of transparency it was phenomenal. So kudos to the team who pulled that together and looking forward to more and more for the Saturday sessions. Next question. Next question comes to us from Robert Sabati in Poland. Uh, Robert says, is there a trick to forcing the handbrake, a tool used for transcoding a video and audio files to other formats, to use the NVIDIA GPUs in my Windows graphics computer? Go ahead, Alex. It should do that automatically. I mean, it should be using the GPU there. It may not be fully utilizing all of the GPU there, but I'm surprised that it, it there unless you have a setting that turns it off. I mean, I definitely in the past, Handbrake has, has supported GPU usage. And so, um, but it may, I don't know if it uses it as efficiently. Go ahead, Courtney. I can't remember because it's been a long time since I've used Handbrake on Windows. There may be a checkbox that says use hardware acceleration on it. And make sure if you find that checkbox that it is checked because it will use the GPU to help with encoding. Uh, and it depends on the level of encoding you're requiring, either single pass or multi-pass. And I think maybe if you do multi-pass, it may, uh, maybe it turns that off. I'm not sure. So check that. It, it may depend on whether it uses the GPU on what type of encoding you're telling it to do. The level next, of encoding. Next question. Next question comes to us from Andy Kokendorfer in Vieira, Florida. Do you think that MidJourney will offer personal vectors, prompts, tuning data as an add-on so that results can be tailored to individuals? This could lead to folks having their own style of generative AI. Go ahead, John. They're just they're trying to be super careful on copyright violations here. And that's the reason why they're not letting you build personal models. There's other open source platforms out there that let you build your own models based on your own imagery. And so that's the reason why you haven't seen it so far. What happens in the future? Once these these lawsuits get cleared up, then that will change the industry completely. Courtney? On this question, John, do you think they're talking about personal models or are they talking about just prompt tuning? Because I have seen a couple of videos, uh, Matt Wolf on Matt Wolf's site, um, uh, Future Tools, uh, that uh, have to do with preloading your uh, uh, chat GPT with a certain prompt that will set it up to tune, uh, to tune the responses for what you want. And uh, so, I mean, mid-journey not ChatGPT, mid-journey to tune it to what you want so it will respond to variables within uh, your prompt so that you can plug in certain variables which it will deal with. Yeah, mid-journey so, will let you load two images right now, but that's it, no more after that. If you could load up 10 images and have it build off of 10 as a pre-trained, then, then that's a different story. But I think they're just being very careful. Ah, okay. Uh, 
and Alex, Alex is the mid journey pro. Right, here. right. Well, no, I, and I think that I think that the, the the closest I get is that I I keep track of a lot of styles that I like, and so if I get something that looks the way I want it to look, it's not the same as tuning it. But but what I do is I have a huge. <laughs> it started off as a as a notes document. It's now become a a spreadsheet of, you know, this is the, when I'm looking at this, when I'm doing landscapes or people or whatever, here are a bunch of options that worked. Um, and I kind of, you know, keep on adding those, but I, that might be a big chunk at the end. So I'll say, I want this. And then I copy and paste in with this kind of camera, with this kind of lens in this, in this style and this, da, 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 da. and so it, it's not my look, so to speak, but you can definitely get something where you know what you're going to, you know, the style that it's going to come out as. Uh, when you when you put that that little section on the end. Next question. Next one comes from Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas. How do you how do you do a top down shot? Do you have a dedicated set for this? Go ahead, Alex. You know, there's so many options <laughs> to do the top down shots. Um, you know, for a set for a in a studio, you oftentimes have a camera that's pointed there, and typically. Um, for a lot of sets, we put PTZs up there, so we'll hang a PTZ. This is one place where you don't usually need to have a really nice PTZ. You're getting an overhead shot, but we've hung everything from um, really basic cameras to to, you know, um, to like the um, some of the Sony's, uh, and we use these for cooking a lot. And so we'll put those into the rig, or we'll rig something over it. So a lot of times, what we do is we take um, a set of C stands and we'll put them on either side of some of whatever desk we're looking at, and run speed rail and there's speed rail and there's a couple of folks that that make some dual rails which you can kind of move the cameras back and forth and you can kind of get to where you where you want to go you can even motorize those and so we've used those as a you know the motorized rigs that people use to do artsy shots sometimes we hang them upside down and and let them go back and forth depends on the on the rig because some of them don't like to be hung upside down <laughs> so, so anyway so the uh they're not built for that and so you um so you have to figure out you know which ones some of them will, will reverse hook, you know, to, to allow you to do that. Um, anyway, so we'll, we'll do that. I, I had a simple one yesterday. I was on after hours for a couple hours talking to folks and, um, and we were talking about everything and I was, I was cooking. And so I wanted an overhead shot and I actually used, uh, this, this is just a little Samson. And what happened was I, I, I test a lot of mic, um, a lot of mic stands and this one has a super heavy base. It's like cast iron, base on the bottom. And I was like, oh, well, I wonder how this would work. And I just adapted it um, for from a mic, mic, uh, I have, I have adapters for just about everything. And so I adapted it to three quarter, which then put this little ball head on, which then put this, this little rig. Um, this is a kind of a beefy iPhone rig that I have got a couple of these. And um, this worked great. Like I just hung it up over my my cutting board, and uh, Grant and I mostly talked, and uh, and we we sat there, and people got to watch watch me cut onions. Um, How tall and, is that roughly? Um, this is uh, it. It will extend. So oh, okay. this is this is actually a pretty. It, you can't put it on the floor. It's a it's a desktop. Um, okay. But it, this, I believe, will. Um, I I, have, I I didn't try to. There we go. So it'll go up. I would say it's it, it'll go up about almost about 20 inches high on this base here. And then this is another, and this, this, this can move back and forth. So you can kind of, and as a desktop, like I just want to throw something over top of it. It was kind of spur of the moment looking around like, what am I going to, I thought it'd be fun to jump in after hours and just start cutting because <laughs> there was nobody in it. I jumped into after hours to talk, but there was nobody talking. There were people in after hours 
And so I figured I'm just going to set up a cutting board and just start cutting my, making my soup and we'll just see if anybody like opens their mic and people, a couple of people open their mic. And so we started talking. And so, um, anyway, so it was, so it was really a spur of the moment kind of, uh, experiment, but as a quick desktop, it worked pretty well. That is a great question, Paul. Go ahead, Bill. Well, I was just going to try to help some people out. If you want some search terms to look for something that will assist you in doing an overhead shot, typically you have some kind of a boom, which is really a generic industry term for a horizontal mounted extension that goes on top of a tripod or, or anything else that gets you out. Uh, when you get up into the bigger ones, I have one that, that goes from about six feet to about eight feet that I use a lot. Typically, I'd use it for my kicker light behind somebody in a field shoot, but I've also used it to mount a camera over. And once you have that much distance out from the pedestal that you're mounting it on, you have a lot of flexibility in terms of moving it around to get exactly the shots you want. The next level up is what Hollywood typically calls menace arms. It's a weird term, but that's an extension that goes out a long way. And sometimes you can get them up to like 10 or 15 feet. And that's really useful if you want to put an overhead camera over something and you don't have a lot of ground space for putting your heavy tripod. As was mentioned, make sure that you make stable rigs. Safety is very important. And I think the menace arm kind of gives you a hint about that. If you don't rig these correctly, particularly if you have a long extension, if you don't put a counterweight on it so that it really is balanced, it can tilt down and you can break things on your set. So just be wary. There you go. And Courtney. Hey, you guys covered most of the salient points in the olden days. In the olden days, when I was a camera operator, the cameras weighed 250 pounds. And uh, it was difficult to mount them overhead in a cooking show, for example. So we would put a large horizontal, like a dresser, you know, like a uh, dressing mirror, horizontally over the set at a 45-degree angle. And then any of the camera persons on the floor that are shooting the, shooting from the front could just tilt up to the mirror and get the mirror shot that's looking down. The only problem with this is, of course, it's reversed. It's a mirror image. So if you had uh, labels or something, uh, you know, product labels or something you wanted to show from overhead, it would they would be reversed and they would have to flip it in the DVE to make it read correctly. Uh, and the other thing is now that cameras are so light and you can stick, you know, maybe a used phone up there like Alex did in his phone holder and <clears throat> use that as an overhead camera. Uh, be aware if you're doing a cooking show that if uh, you're cooking with a lot of steam, it can steam up those lenses. And the second thing, as Bill pointed out, safety is an issue. You might want to put a little safety tagline on that. So, because if it comes loose, you don't want it falling into your goulash in the middle of your cooking show. You know? And Alex? Yeah, one other thing that we, we've done uh, a fair bit of is we take a jib, and usually it's a small jib. You can get these little jibs for two or $3,000 that fold up, and then you can put them back, you can set them all up. And we'll hang it, and we've done it with full-on production cameras, um, and we hang it right over someone's shoulder so that it's really their POV, of, and you see their hands. And then what, we've, what we tend to do there is they can just work um, if, we, if we frame it right, but a lot of times what we do is we put a monitor up in front of them, and um, what it's allowed them to do is they can look up. And so it's, it's kind of an interesting uh, geometry, but they're looking up into a teleprompter but they're seeing their hands, you know, and so so they can sit there and talk and they're looking and what's been what, what allows them to do is they can sit there and talk and talk to you and be working and they're looking up. It's a very odd way to do it, but it means that you get that they're not looking down and working on something. So we were trying to figure that out. Um, it, it, it has worked fairly well, um, but it's 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 a little bit of a rig to set up um, to get it right. So 
You actually just like, because there are a lot of people on IG or when they're doing tutorials and I've wondered about camera angles and then making sure you don't have shadows. So just even what you're saying, because sometimes if, and especially if you use a mobile device and you've got that top down, your hands are in the way. So that hack that you just shared is brilliant because then they don't, it doesn't obstruct their view so that you get smooth movements. Yeah, it, it works really well. And then the, the, um, the other thing is, is you can get a lot of cameras and we do like to take these little, the one camera that's worked really, really well from a cost effective perspective has been the little Blackmagic Micro Studios, which we hope that they're going to put out another set of those at some point, modernize them. But there's a 12 to, I think it's a 12 to 40 or something power zoom lens that is, you know, we get it up pretty high up over your head and we can zoom really nice and close uh, with the lens and we can control that from the switcher. And that's the big thing is that we can kind of push in on things and, and, you know, those are, and, and thinking of multiple ones, I mean, for cooking, we've had as many as, you know, 15, not 15, uh, we had 15 cameras. We had a total of like six in the room, in the, in the ceiling um, for different things. We had a total of 15 cameras for one, one rig that we did. Um, and it was just really just capturing every angle at the best way. And the, and one of the things that if you're going to do overhead shots is rehearse. That's good for everything, but you rehearse and you figure, oh, I'm not going to be in the shot here. There's no shot here. There's no shot here. There's no, that's how we ended up with 15 cameras because we kept on finding places that we didn't have shots. We we're like, oh, we'll just add another camera over there, <laughs> you know? And so it was a really important uh, chef. So we were just like, we decided to pull all the stops out. We just brought like a truck of cameras down and just kept on adding them until, <laughs> until there was no place he could be where we couldn't get a close up. So next question. Paulo Lopez Waterman in Brevard, excuse me, North Carolina, says my Stream Deck Plus will eventually be a big part of my tech table setup. Alongside a, uh, command keys and a quieter three, the encoders will also be use will be so useful for focusing movers. It worked once, but it's not working anymore. Is his main problem. What steps do you all take with companion module issues, Alex? My answer is not so much companion, but general is find out if that encoder works anywhere else. So, you know, like, so check to see, is it communicating correctly? And is it, is there any kind of breakup of the data? Uh, so again, I don't know how to fix that in companion, but um, I would, uh, um, you know, look for some modules um, with the encoders and just make sure that they're working somewhere else. Um, and then, and then I would put it into something like, you know, Isadora or something. I know you, I know Tlaloc knows Isadora. <laughs> See if you can get it to talk to it to make sure that you understand that it's working and everything's there. And then, and then I would start with a fresh, this is how, I mean, I would start with a fresh build of companion. Um, you know, if, if it had worked once, it usually means that there's some kind of preference in there or something that it's looking for that's not there. So if I knew that it worked once, you know, I, I know that this is aggressive, but I would save the companion that I had you know, thoroughly remove it, save the settings there, thoroughly, thoroughly remove it and put it back in and try it again and see if it works. Next question. Samuel Nordvik in Norway says, what are the commands that you prefer to call to camera operators uh, via comms in a live event? Alex? You know, most of them are pretty specific. I mean, they're, they're, they're pretty generalized, you know, like you're saying, ready camera three, camera three, ready camera four, camera four. And then you're going to ask for things like, Hey, just give me a close, can you get me a close up over there? Get me this, get, you know, get those hands, you know, you know, camera four, get me this. And you're not, it's not like there's a, there's, I don't know. I, I haven't found that there is a, um, a specific language that I use for everyone. It, I found that when I listen to camp TDs or, or producer or, um, 
directors calling it, they kind of have their own style of how they like to say it. I haven't heard it to be a generalized, like, this is the way you do it. But they'll say, you know, sometimes they'll say, give me a little more nose room. That just means give me more room in front of the person's face instead of behind it. Um, you know, give me a, you know, a head and shoulder, give me a waist up, give me a, sometimes they'll call that a cowboy, uh, I guess is, is really uh, thighs up, um, you know, shot. Uh, full, you know, give me a full frame, give me a wide, you know, and those are, those are some general ones that, that people use. The most important thing I've found is that I spend a lot of time with the camera crew before the show and we define what each camera's mission is because it's usually not, they're not, their mission isn't all the same. It's like, you're going to be doing, I'm going to expect these kind of shots from you. You know, I'm going to expect these kind of shots. And when you have good camera operators, you oftentimes don't say much of anything to them. They know in the flow of things where their camera should be and they're handing you camera shots um, that you need. Obviously, you can be asking for something specific when you need it, but it's um, but 80% of the show is with good camera ops will be uh, them finding the shots for you and you just telling them when you're coming to them. But it is important to call out the ready camera three, camera three. Uh, if you start cutting, it's hard for them to know what's going on. Bill? Yeah, that, that last point that Alex just made is to me the essence of this. Um, you have two different kinds of setups. One where the camera operators have a little ret or return button on their camera that they can actually see what's going to air. And that can really be helpful with them because they know when their shot is live all the time. In lieu of that, if they are searching for a shot and you see something you like, you have to tell them to hold that shot. And then ready three would be camera three. I'm coming to you. Don't do anything. Take three means you're now live and you can go on and talk to other camera operators until you ready another camera and take it. And so it's that process of letting your camera operators understand where they are in the flow and where they're live. Because we've all seen those instances where the communications breaks down and a live shot will swing away looking for something else. And that's the miscommunication because everybody didn't know exactly what was going on through the, the show callers calls. Courtney. All good advice. Uh, remember, if you're going to be directing this stuff, is familiarize yourself with the terminology so you don't, you know, sound stupid, like saying things like tilt right. Uh, you know, it's tilt is up and down, pan is left and right. If the uh, camera operators are on a pedestal where the camera can physically move or a dolly, you can say truck right, truck left, truck in, which means move the camera physically closer, which will change your depth of field. Uh, or truck right will change the position of the foreground versus the background. So uh, there's those types of commands, which aren't used very often, unless of course you're dealing with cameras that can move uh, under the camera operator's control. So just familiarize yourself with those. And, and Al, as Alex said, you know, there are certain slang terms for, you know, cowboys, certain sizes of shots uh, that you may hear called for. So familiarize yourself with the slang uh, for both camera operators and directors so that uh, you're, you're all on the same page when they, when they says, give me a cowboy, you don't, you know, give them the wrong type of shot. And thank you so much, producers, for your questions. Keep them coming. And remember that this show is driven by you. So voting counts. So vote up the questions that you're looking forward to. And we'll continue to get into these questions. Next question. Uh, Michael Marsh in San Anselmo says, is there a way, is there a quick way of splitting a stereo audio file into pairs of mono? The batch process would be great as I have many. Go ahead, Alex. Yeah, the, the batch process is the part that I, I mean, it's not hard to, to split a, a, an audio file and then just export them out as either separate audio tracks, um, you know, so something like, uh, uh, 
uh, resolve will just let you just export the tracks separately. Um, so you can you can do that relatively quickly. But but I don't know how to batch it. Um, I guess. Uh, oh well, Mickey pointed out that uh, Wave Agent. I, I, I does Wave Agent still open? On the on the Mac, I'm not hundred percent sure. It's a pretty old app from uh, Sound Devices, but I'm not. But uh, Wave Agent would do it as well, yeah. Courtney, yeah, Wave Agent is you know based on my software, um, but um, yeah, I, I was going to rec- recommend Wave Agent Two Beta. It's available on Windows and Mac. I guess it still works in the Mac. I haven't tried it lately, but it's designed. Uh, there's a there's an additional problem if you're dealing with broadcast wave files because if you're going to split apart a multi-track poly file that has you know more than two tracks in it uh, for let's say encoding to MP3 for uh, uh, transcription, um, it has to maintain the time code if they're going to use time coded transcription. So if it's a broadcast wave file that has time code in it. Uh, make sure you use something like Wave Agent that can split it apart and maintain the time code. Uh, so uh, uh, there's other, you know, there's lots of uh, software, you know, uh, <clears throat> that is designed for audio, for music and stuff that does not know anything about time code. And when they split the tracks out and resolve may not may not preserve the broadcast wave chunk when it splits those tracks out into individual mono files. So take care with that. Wave Agent should do it if it still runs on the current version of Max. Wave Agent 2, download it from Sound Devices. It's free. Yeah, Mickey says, yes, it still runs and it maintains metadata. Go ahead, Bill. Well, and this is going to depend in part on your software program. You don't specify what kind of computer or what software you're running, but a lot of the nonlinear editing software will give you some capability to do this. I am a Final Cut editor, and it has a switch, single switch. You can do as many clips as you want, and you switch it from uh, whatever it in came to dual mono, and then there's a little command, a short keystroke to uh, break apart clip items, and then you have everything separately. So even a three-hour show, it takes about 10 seconds to do all this. I would suspect, as sophisticated as all these programs are, that there must be something in the back end of the rest of the programs in the NLE itself that will allow you to do these kinds of functions. They're pretty typical. Next question. Jack Rupel in Breckenridge, Colorado. Can the panel comment on the broadcast coverage of the Tour de France? Web coverage, streaming, editorial? Alex? I think you may have stumped the, 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 the current panel. I don't think there's a lot of, a lot of bicy- competitive bicycle uh, enthusiasts here. Uh, I probably would have checked it out a little bit more had I um, not been traveling. <laughs> so so I, I just, just to look at the coverage itself, because it is another one of those kind of tier one uh, type uh, shows that has lots and lots of coverage. And it covers such a huge area that it would be a really interesting one to, to dig into. And I'll try to go back and take a look at it. I I, in your last, after your last question or somebody's last question about it over the weekend, I did try to find it. And I realized that because I hadn't paid much attention, I hadn't set up my records on YouTube TV, so I didn't have it. So, so I, I have to go back and just look at some general records. And so it, we'll, we'll see if we can't find a little more information about it. Go ahead, Bill. Well, I just, if anybody's interested, and if you're interested in more coverage of the Tour de France and how it's covered, because it is a singular event. I mean, this happens over such an incredibly long distance. It is a gigantic army of production that goes into it. I actually have a friend who used to work in the ITV truck for it uh, as they were doing their uh, English-based coverage of Tour de France. And I might be able to get him on as a guest. So if you're interested in that, bring in put it in the uh, things I'd like to see in the future show, and I'll see if he's still willing to do that. Next question. 
Peter Moore in Auckland, New Zealand. I have Chorus, the fiber wholesaler here, installing it this Arvo. Hmm. Uh, 10 gigabit capable ONT with four Ethernet ports, but three are inactive as I'm on one ISP. Anyone with dual ISPs in their home setup? And if so, what gotchas are there with regard to uh, DR failover? Alex. Yeah, the big thing that you have to think about, it's just a, motor, a matter of deciding, you know, how you're going to fail over. Usually you're going to need a, a router that's capable of that, uh, a router or a switch that's capable of, of doing that. And so typically a router. Um, and so, you know, most of the time we've used Meraki's for that type of thing where we're going to do a failover. It's not instant. So you think of a failover as you don't want it to be instant because it, would, it could theoretically go back and forth over some very small issues. So usually there's a half a second, second of it deciding, am I really not getting any data? And then it's going to flip over to the other one. So you have to decide whether that's what you want or do you have apps that are capable of jumping from one to the other faster? So sometimes you want, for instance, we don't really want our we don't necessarily, we may have that set up that way, but a lot of times for our encoders, the encoders, for instance, might have a primary encoder and a backup encoder. We just want them to go out on the separate, on those separate lines um, to to make sure that, because the, the, on the other side of HLS, if we've, um, you know, if we've output locked our elementals, as an example, it will be seamless when it goes from one to the other. And so, so those are the kind of things that you have to decide of, are you going to do it at the app level or are you going to do it at your, at when, the, when it's coming in? Um, and again, you will not typically have it be perfectly seamless. That may, there, there may be like, if, and, and you only, you would only notice it if you were streaming. If you're just using the internet, generally you're not going to notice that it's going to be, there's just going to be this little dropout for a second and comes right back up again. Next question. Jack Rupel in Breckenridge, Colorado. Might distance learning and remote work be advantageous for the neurodiverse? Go ahead, Alex. I think in general, we just have to look at it as it's, it's for both education and workflow. We just have to, I think we're in a place where people can decide, you know, people can decide what works for them, uh, you know, and, and what, where they're most effective. And I think you're going to see that continue to play out right now. At first we had, everyone was forced to stay home. So they had to remote work from remote. Now we're back to people really wanting people to come back to the office. Uh, and you know, I think that there's about 30% of the, of the population that really wants to be in the office. They want to be out of their house. There's about 30% of the population that, that would prefer that don't really care, like, oh, you know, back and forth, whatever. And there's 30% that really don't want to come back, you know? And so, so I think that there's, I think that what we're going to find with both education as well as uh, workflow is that it's, it's not a matter of who would be better at it or not better at it, but, but providing the flexible opportunities so that you get the best workers to be in their most comfortable environment so they can be the most productive. Bill? I know very little about this other than the fact that I have been schooled over and over again that the the this population the the point of the spectrum as it's commonly phrased is that there's such diversity along that that individuals need to be addressed not groups so I don't think the neurodiverse has any solution I think it's human beings who are facing different challenges and all these challenges are subtly different. That's what makes this difficult. At least it seems that way to me as an outsider. Next question. Um, Alexander Knight, Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. Someone loaned me an X32 rack with a Dante card so I can learn how to use Dante. Other than purchasing virtual sound cards, do I need any of the other paid apps to make it work on my Mac? Alex? No, it, it, once you once you install um, uh, 
uh, once you have the, the, the Dante virtual sound card, it's going to show up as a source so you can use it. Now, you can probably take more advantage of it with something like Loopback, um, you know, where it's, you can really route things and reroute them to where you need them to go. But you should be able to see the basic operation of, the, uh, of Dante from your Mac apps uh, once the, the DBS is installed. Next question. Chris Widener in Lafayette, Indiana says, been getting a lot of requests for in-person events. What do you think about kits based around the Mevo start with Rode wireless mics using SRT caller for the automatic connect and remote switching? Alex. Uh, latency on SRT is pretty high, you know, to make it work well. So uh, much higher than we would consider acceptable for a um, a typical back and forth. So if, if you're going to throw it to someone, SRT is fine. Uh, so you can say, I, I'm going to throw this to Liberty and now Liberty's going to take over and there's a little bit of a hiccup there. But if you're having conversations back and forth of, of people talking, I wouldn't. And, and the, here's the problem in an event. Is it going to... Uh, is it going to devolve into a conversation unexpectedly? That's where we really see it. Someone sends an SRT signal out and then the person does a present presentation and then someone who's not clear of what the limitations are starts talking to them from the stage or starts to, or they say, okay, now we're going to open for questions. And you get this kind of clunkiness that, that comes with SRT um, that, that is, and again, it's not, it's not the end of the world. There are definitely people who do events with SRT and it looks okay, but it has a sluggishness to it that when you're used to low latency, it's part of what undermines our ability to do online events is because people feel like they lose energy. And, and part of losing energy is this, this long distance lag that, that gets inserted. And so, uh, so we think about that lag all the time uh, to kind of, I'm, I, I work in, uh, my day job is really working in tens of milliseconds of trying to shave off little bits and pieces to really, to really tie that together. And so even, I would even consider what we're doing here on this show to be the outer, you know, the outer edge of what I'm, what I, what I view acceptable and SRT is two or three times slower than that. Cause remember it's round trip is part of the, you're multiplying everything by two. So, um, so I wouldn't, unless they're only coming in and only, you know, you're never going back and forth. I wouldn't use SRT for that. Next question. Next one comes to us from Peter Moore in Auckland, New Zealand again. I have a nice desk currently in storage, which has tempered glass and was wondering if there are issues people have with mic booms and so forth clamping onto a glass surface. Hoping to get it here soon. Courtney. Well, it depends on how thick, you know, if you clamp it to the edge, you can clamp it to the edge depending upon what the glass is mounted in. Another thing you might consider is something like a a vacuum mount, uh, like this Panavase Panavice vacuum base that you can get that uh, has this little lever on the side and it uh, attaches itself to glass very firmly. And then it has this adjustable uh, uh, top on it that can rotate. And then a spud, a three eighths inch spud can fit into that little hole there. And it's designed for holding a vice, obviously, but you could use it for holding an arm uh, to the top of your uh, to the top of your glass. And it holds very sturdily. I've used it on many glass tables for holding vice, vice holding things. They work quite well. Alex? 
Yeah, and there's a plethora of those types of suction cups. If you go to Film Tools and do, you know, um, suction mounts or or something like that, you're going to see a whole group of them. And they're large, they're small. Some of them, the the one thing that um, when you use industrial, I tend to use ones that are designed to work on cars because they tend to be a little bit more gentle than the more um, industrial ones. Uh, and so um, on the glass. And so you can also get ones that spread out. So you have three suction cups that are that are connected to it, and one sometimes in the center. That's going to reduce the amount of pressure on any one point on your glass. I would never, ever, but like never, never, ever, ever clamp something to a piece of glass. <laughs> you know, so it's, it's the physics of that is all kinds of bad. So, so definitely look at the suction cups. Next question. Chris Widener in Lafayette, Indiana. Up next, backpack screens for sandwich board replacements. Thoughts? I have only found one manufacturer of pre-made. Any suggestions on backpacks? for make my own alex i'm trying to figure out what the backpack screens. i'm assuming these are like little screens that attach to like an arduino or raspberry pi or or other types of things um that that are there i don't have any specific ones i've used lots of little ones the touch the touch screens don't tend to work very well <laughs> like i find that they're you know they're kind of cheap but um if, if that's what you're looking at i'm not entirely sure so I, um, sorry, Bill, um, I read that maybe differently because I've seen, um, I met someone earlier this year, I read it as the backpacks, like backpacks and then having the screens on them. Is If that's what you're saying, Chris, let us know in the chat because I can see if I can find that person's information because I thought it was um, quite fascinating that he had that like built in. So as he would walk around showroom floors, he had that. So yes, let me know if that's what you're referring to. Go ahead, Bill. I think it might be because um, sandwich board is the traditional advertising term for those old uh, A-frame kind of things that a person would actually put over their head and walk around downtown New York or something like that for advertising purposes. So uh, I think somebody just popped up a, a graphic here of somebody with a screen, maybe a 16 by 9 uh, reasonably large screen on their backpack to do for like something trade show advertising as you're walking around to promote something. Interesting idea. I hadn't seen that before. Yeah, I think it was Courtney. Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, I, I found this on uh, on the internet, you know. Uh, this backpack screen uh, designed with an Arduino inside so you can wear it at like a trade show and go around advertising with a sandwich board uh, dynamic uh, video playing on your back. So that looks interesting. It does cost you about $1,121, though. That's kind of pricey. Okay, so yeah, Chris updates us in the chat saying digital signage, wearable advertising, um, 17-inch screen. So Chris, yeah, I'll see if I can find um, that person's information because he was an illustrator. And so when he goes to his business was like he'd go around, he'd have a booth, but he said that he got more from people watching like him actually like he would have his tablet and then it's showing what's happening. So as he's walking around, so he found it very effective. So he doesn't even have like a, a location. He just goes to trade shows based on that and then getting, you know, getting the eyeballs and then converting those to um, prospects and leads. So I will look out for that. Please message me in Discord if you don't hear from me in like a week. Next question. 
Morgan Price is up next from Victoria, British Columbia. Uh, what text-to-speech tool are people using for personal listening of longer-form content? He notes scripts particularly. Uh, I'm looking for something free with no word count so I can listen for clarity of my own writing versus share and don't want to pay per character. He's looking specifically for Mac and iOS. And Morgan, I, I don't know. I, I used a pronoun. And I'm sorry. Uh, just that for, he's looking for it for Mac and iOS. Alex? Yeah, I, I don't know. Um, uh, I, I don't know about the iOS. I've been using Dream. I think it's called DreamScript or something. I'll listen to whole PDFs with that. As far as my own work, when I'm writing something, I, I listen to it all the time because I have a bad habit of of putting. <laughs> I have a bad habit of reversing sentences automatically like by accident while I'm typing. So I, I need to listen to it. Uh, and I just use the Apple and built-in tools, speech to uh, text to speech, and I just select it and say speak, and it just will just play it out. Um, I don't. I haven't used anything custom for that on my Mac. Um, and I, I can't, there's one called dream something and I'll have to try to find it on my, on my phone, but that I've used to listen to PDF. So I load them into books and then I just, or I load them into this, this app and I hit go and I've listened to 200 pages of the only problem you get into is bibliographies, <laughs> especially scientific stuff. I listen to a oh. NASA thing and every chapter ends with this long <laughs> droning, blah, 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 blah. And you're just like, uh, Oh my gosh, you know, like just, just. Don't you know? So I'm looking forward to AI. Not so much making the voices better. I don't care about that. But I just needed to know that it's, this is a bibliography section. I'm gonna I'm gonna skip it. Oh, I can't imagine having to read that ibid dot three. Oh my god, it would yeah. be horrible. Yes. Yeah. Next uh, question. <laughs> uh, Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas. What are the barriers to entry for Amazon sellers in setting up a studio for product reviews? Alex. I think the only thing is, is that you need to, usually they're, they're not just opening that up for someone to do. I think that, that you need to be approved. Uh, I know that when I, I'm approved, I just haven't done any videos. So, uh, but I had to send them my Twitter account and other accounts to there so they can see that I'm a bona fide uh, creator. Yeah, somewhere upwards, there is a significant amount of followers that you need to have. I think there's like two ways that you can, um, two ways that you can get through um, approvals. But I would also think that um, Jeffrey Powers would probably be a good person as well to ask that question following up with. Next question. Kalalik Lopez-Waterman in Brevard, North Carolina. Anyone used or using Zoom summaries yet? Alex? You know, for, this is an AI tool that, that Zoom has put out, and I've heard people using it, uh, and I've talked to them about it. I haven't used it myself yet. Uh, and what this will do, of course, is you can write a longer paragraph. You know that whole, like, I wrote you a long letter uh, because I didn't have time to write you a short one? Well, now you have time. You just write the long letter and say, summarize this, or if someone sends you something long, you can say, summarize it. I I need to experiment with it. I. I have to admit those kinds of tools worry me a lot. You know, like they worry me that they're not going to, I'm okay with it taking mine, but it's summarizing. I feel like I'm going to have to read the other one anyway, because I'm going to have to figure out if it skipped anything or didn't do anything exactly the way I want it. But the reports that I've have been very positive. People have used it and are really happy with it. Next question. Morgan Price in Victoria, British Columbia. Again, do panelists have a preferred wireless mic for iPhones for after hours, specifically thinking when you're actively doing things like chopping? Do you just use AirPods or something more robust? 
Alex. I was chopping yesterday. So, so there was the, um, and I, you know, didn't mic the board. I, I could have, I, I, there was a thought that I might mic the board just for fun, for a little ASMR for everybody, but I chose not to. Um, I used an open com, a Shox open comms. It's got a boom mic. I don't know if I have one sitting here, but it has a, uh, it has a boom mic that comes down. And the reason that that, that there's a lot of shocks that are really cool, but the boom mic specifically gets a lot closer to your mouth. And what that means is that the off axis, the environmental rejection is very good, much better than the AirPods or anything else I've used. And so when I don't want the chopping and other things to be a distraction uh, or whatever I'm doing to be a distraction, I tend to use the open comms by shocks. Um, those have been the best wireless solution. And it's really nice because the, the chopping, if you were in after hours yesterday when I was, when I was chopping and talking to Grant about production, uh, the, um, was, a was my phone. So I, the phone that I was on was there sitting over top of the chopping board and I'm just walking around chopping and walking around the kitchen and talking and it worked really, really well. Go ahead, Bill. Yeah, I uh, based on our Cinegear coverage on the the Friday that I was on site, I just used an AirPod for that whole day, and I have to admit, I was really impressed on how well it worked. I was coming in from my iPhone; it knows those AirPods. It connected immediately. I was able to talk and listen successfully to everybody I was connected to. So, uh, it's not a bad solution at all. Is it the absolute best? No, but it it functioned beautifully. So, yeah, definitely keep those in the in the balance. Alex? Yeah, I've kind of, I have four headsets just to kind of put it in perspective of that I, that I switch between um, when I'm, uh, uh, when I'm in, in meetings, I use the open comms when I'm uh, exercising or walking and I don't expect to take any calls, but I want it to be good. I use the ultimate ear fits because they just fit much, much better and they sound much better than the air, than, than the AirPods or the open comms. AirPods are kind of general purpose. I'm just going to throw them in while I'm doing something. And it's primarily because the iPhone will not automatically go to another Bluetooth headset. It will only automatically go to the AirPods. So the problem with that is that you, if someone calls you, you have to explicitly grab onto a Bluetooth headset if it's not AirPods. So if I'm just walking around and I don't know what, and I'm not trying to do anything specific, I do that. And then I use the AirPod Maxes when I'm in the plane <laughs> because it's, they're the, they have the best uh, uh, environmental um, uh, exclusion. And for our producers, you can submit questions at any time and vote up or vote down questions that drive our show for our panelists to be able to give you the best responses possible. Next question. Samuel Nordvik in Norway. How does the backup stream in YouTube work? Do you use, uh, use it and do you send the same stream to both? Alex? Yeah, it's pretty important that you do send the same stream to both because you're not guaranteed. The way it works um, is that you're sending two streams to YouTube, two ingests, and those are then being delivered. Now, generally, primary is the one that's being delivered to everyone. But if there's any problem for any certain person in that ingest and workflow, it may change. So you're not guaranteed that everyone's on primary backup. It doesn't like I'm going to switch everybody to primary or everyone to backup. If there's a problem with the ingest, it may do that. But if there's a problem somewhere down the pipeline, it may, 30% of your pop, of your viewers may be on the backup if you're sending a primary and a backup. So so you, you want to be careful of having both of those, you know, go separately. Now, there are advantages. You sometimes take a risk with that where uh, I'm going to use a live view as, a, as the backup, right? But the problem is the live view may not have the same quality as your sat truck or your fiber truck or whatever, or your fiber relay. And so um, oftentimes what we try to do is, get those multiple encodes back to one place like our master control and then send them out as a primary and a backup to our 
um, you know, to our stream from there. And it's two identical streams that we can switch back and forth between the sources. But it's two identical streams. And in a perfect world, what you're going to do is do what we call output locking. So um, on our larger encoders, we have a, a reference that comes in. If we if we ref both of the of the encoders, we can have one encoder look at the other, you know, we can lock them so that they are sending out the frames at the exact same cadence. And so now they're going out at the exact same cadence, and that's going to allow YouTube to do a seamless rollover from primary to backup. The other thing that you want to do when you do that is you uh, you want to start primary first. If you start both of them at the same time, it may decide that the backup is the primary, and then it's, you're on backup the whole time. So we start primary first, and then we start the backup. Now, oftentimes we want to test that, so we'll start primary first, then we have backup, and then we do a roll. So we just we, um, the best way to do that is not to turn the encoder off because it'll send a flag that says I'm turning off. It's to pull the Ethernet out of the cable, out of the back of the encoder. <laughs> so you just pull it out and force it to do a hard, a hard turn. Um, and, uh, and then you'll get to see it, what it looks like. And you just want something moving that's complicated so that you can see what's happening. And you see if it goes seamlessly. And a lot of times it can. And some, you know, in that case, sometimes we have the encoder burn something in like A and B so that we can, we can see that it switched over to, to B if it's seamless. Um, then we, uh, then we roll back and then we turn off the B encoder and then let it roll back to A. Usually the rollback to A is less smooth <laughs> than the role than the role to be so that's anyway that's that's how you use those in youtube uh, i highly recommend it it's you will see you know you will see issues you know with your ingest and so on and so forth uh for any any stream that matters you should be doing a primary and a backup and code uh to uh to youtube next question Next one comes from Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas. How does the Shure MV7 microphone stack up against the Shure SM7B and the Heil PR40 if the MV7 is used as an XLR mic? Alex. I don't think it's quite as good. I mean, I, to, be, to be flat out, I think that the I, if I was going to stack it up, I think the SM7B is probably the best sounding of those three mics. Uh, Heil PR40 behind that um, and then the MV7. Uh, so I think that it's the advantage of the MV7 is, is that it has, you know, you can go USB. It's sim, it, this is the simplicity. I can go USB or I can go um, uh, with XLR. So that flexibility is good. But I think that it's not quite it's this, I think it's actually the same pickup. It's just a slightly different enclosure. Uh, but I, you know, the SM7Bs, I think, sound really great. <laughs> Bill? To Alex's point about the enclosures, I've been using these kinds of microphones for a long, long time. And as a matter of fact, my first main voiceover microphone was one of these monsters. It's an SM5B. And I was using it in studios. I would go into a studio to do a voiceover recording. And I would, audio video recorders in Phoenix is where I started my career. And they would mostly hang that in front of me for doing them. I opened it up one day and what did I see? An SM57 capsule. The same one that was in the SM57 and the SM57. 58, and so they had put it in a different kind of enclosure for a different thing, and that's the point I was making. Even the same microphone capsule, exactly the same electronics, exactly the same diaphragm and pickup, in different enclosures will sound differently, So, and you can use them differently. So that's one of the subtleties here. It may not be that the capsule is different mic to mic, but the way the engineers mount them and what they put in front of them in terms of pop filters or windscreens will color the sound. So it's just another a set of variables you have to learn when you're dealing with various microphones. Next question. 
Next question comes to us from Douglas Carmichael. Uh, Douglas says, has anyone ever used No Machine NX? I've been using it as an uh, alternative to Splashtop, and I found it very useful for non-latency-sensitive remote desktop access. And he's got a link there. Alex? Yeah, we haven't used it yet. I mean, most of the stuff that uh, we've kind of leaned towards, uh, or what I use is AnyDesk, and then I switch over to Apple Remote Desktop because I have a deeper connection between the Macs. Um, you know, so, but I'm not trying to go cross-platform at all. Next question. Peter Moore in Auckland, New Zealand. Anyone in the Apple TV OS beta use Zoom for or FaceTime yet? My ATV4, aka HD, is too old, which I commented on a while back, and that a new ATV is imminent, and he's looking at October or November of this year. Alex? We thought that this was going to happen like a decade ago. You know, Apple had a USB connection on the back of their Apple TVs, and we thought for sure they're going to eventually give us webcam access. Um, and so, uh, so I haven't gotten to test it yet, but I think that it's pretty. It's a pretty exciting idea that you can just take your. I think there's going to be they Apple in the in their keynote shows a little thing that's underneath the the TV. Um, and I think that people are going to realize that what they really want to do is mount it right over the TV and probably build a permanent mount for their, for the people who do this, a permanent mount for their cameras that sits right above their TV that they can just kind of pop up and snap it to it the way we do web cameras. And I think that you're probably going to see that happening more and more often as we, as we move forward. Next question. Douglas Carmichael up next. Douglas says, with Twitter requiring users to create an account and log in to view tweets, do you think this will make Twitter less useful for public engagement and communication? Go ahead, Alex. I don't think it's going to make any difference. <laughs> you know, I just don't. Like, everyone, there's a lot of people who are rowdy about Twitter. I have not seen my Twitter feed change at all. <laughs> like this whole during this entire time, I see people apoplectic about a lot of things, and I see everything else. But my Twitter feed is now. I admit mine is heavily redacted. I I, I mute a lot of stuff. I I block a lot of things. I you know. I, I, so I probably don't have a, a run of the mill Twitter. I see a lot of people upset about Twitter um, and talking about going to Threads or going to whatever else they're going to. I just haven't seen anything change, you know. And so I don't I don't know. I mean, because I guess I didn't know I couldn't. I had to. I realized I didn't know I had to log in because I'm logged into Twitter all the time. So it didn't, it didn't show up for me. Uh, but I think that a lot of folks think that the, the sky is falling. I'm not entirely sure that it's going to change much. Courtney? I think he's doing this to prevent uh, bots from uh, scraping uh, Twitter for current events and stuff. That's yeah, he's trying to monetize that. And so this is one way to fight that is you can just make sure that it's registered to a real account and not some bot that has just spun up an account to scrape it. So, Yeah, and just even as a business, just simple business, like are you going to give all the wares and tears of like of your organization without vetting and knowing who has access to it? Because previously people, anyone could just go and look at tweets. So whether that mean news organizations, whomever having that access and now them saying, oh, well, you need to have an account to view what's behind these doors. It's it's really practical. And like Alex said, I don't think that it will make a difference. The only difference would be they're now going to get more signups <laughs> for people who were previously that need that information that had free access to it. So uh, I don't, yeah, I don't think it'll make that much uh, of a difference. If you have Alex said, if you're logged in, you didn't even notice. So um, Alex. 
Yeah, one of the things you're going to see is a, is a fight because Twitter, it, the advantage that it's had for the last 15 years is that it's immediate, that, that you, you see things oftentimes before you see the news. You see things that are happening. You see trends much, much earlier. And what they want to do is make sure that they get to take advantage of that and be the one that you go to for that information. And so by, by as you see this tightening down, what you're seeing is, yeah, as, as was said earlier, cutting out chat, chat bots, um, you know, cutting out anything that's automated. I think you're going to see more and more or less and less support for almost anything um, that's an automated connection to really make it more um, both immediate but only for Twitter users. And so I think that that's going to be um, kind of the, the, the spin of it, and you'll probably see it continue to go that direction. Next question. Next one comes from David Brady in New York City. David says, I have a PowerPoint template that I'm trying to convert to Keynote. Is there an easy way to copy formatting, and he notes specifically font size, weight, and spacing across all slides in the template? Alex? Oh, man. I, I'm sorry. <laughs> That's all I have to say. Uh, the only way to do it is you you build a, uh, you know, the, the easiest way to do that is to make one slide of each template, of each thing from the template, and then bring it into just... Oh, save it out as a PPX or PPTX or whatever and open it in Keynote and then figure out what it broke. You know, there's things that will break on the way through. Uh, Keynote continues to get better at doing these. And then you save each one of those back out as a master slide. Um, and so it's a, it, it is a, it's a, it's not, when everything goes well, it takes about 15 minutes. When things don't go well, it's two or three hours of like going through and figuring it out. And a lot of times you need a, P, what I've used in the past is a PDF of that same document from a PDF from PowerPoint so that I can see what it looked like on PowerPoint to look there. And we've done this a, a fair bit because for a long time we took PowerPoint, uh, we took PowerPoints and we converted them to Keynote because uh, it ran better, you know, and so, so it would, so we would take the, um, the PowerPoints out of it and we'd rebuild it. The places that you really get stuck is not so much the templates, it's really the animations. The PowerPoint animations are going to be different than Keynote. They're not going to line up very well. And so those are the, when we had people that were really actually knew PowerPoint really well were the hardest ones to convert because, and a lot of times we didn't because we just couldn't. But if they just gave us stills, we could usually get that running pretty well. Uh, you'll notice idiosyncrasies. Keynote handles, in my opinion, handle. I think PowerPoint's gotten better at it, but the kerning um, and the spacing and the alpha and the... Um, Anti-aliasing is different in, in Keynote, and for a long time it was massively superior <laughs> to to uh, to um, uh, Keynote, but it's or, or to PowerPoint. But it's gotten a little bit closer. But you may see spacing between letters and other things like that being slightly different. You just keep an eye on that. Go ahead, Bill. Well, I was just wondering, I, I've never been able to do it across an entire presentation, but I have had some success in the past with copying text from one in a particular slide and then using the paste attribute commands, which I think is global in all Mac operating systems. It may save you some time. I wish there was a just open it up and make it the same, but I've never found it either. Next question. Douglas Carmichael says, I've seen a joke picture making the rounds of a Windows BSOD in the uh, MSG sphere in Las Vegas. In real life, how would you prevent such an embarrassing moment? He was talking about the blue screen of death. I should have translated that. Uh, how would you uh, prevent such an embarrassing moment in an ST2110 environment? Are there automatic silence sensors for ST2110? Go ahead, John. So for the past six months, there's been all kinds of test patterns on this thing. And the video processes that are in front of the video machines, whether they're Windows or Linux or, or Mac, 
you will never see the outputs of a BSOD on these screens because the video processes are, are, are talking directly to the panels, number one. Number two, whoever did this warp in 2D of the of the BSOD did a horrible job. They should have rendered it in 3D. And Courtney. Yeah, as John said, the scaler could automatically, a little AI routine to look for that specific color of the font and the and the blue background could automatically detect that and switch it off and go to, you know, go to an alternate video source if it detects the uh, blue specific blue screen of death, you know, so it could automatically fail over to something else. Well, thank you so much to our producers for your questions and keep them coming because we're getting ready to transition to our second hour where we're going to talk about what does it really take to create better project plans. Project plans are the 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 heartbeat of any good production, any good great digital production, movie production, and having that that person or those people who can really help to make sure that we stay on track, to make sure that you're effectively communicating with the right stakeholders and really understanding what are your contingency plans, what happens when crisis happens. And so I'm really happy to have Walise Almeida with us today, and she is a program manager at AWS. Walise, welcome, welcome. So happy to have you here with us. Hi, how are you, Liberty? Fantastic. And and as I shared with you, uh, just our community and that many of us are uh, from the creative side and then those of us who are working inside of organizations that you said something that was really powerful. Like these days when people are looking at at jobs or if you whether applying or looking for talent that Project management is a part of that. Can you not only touch on that, but let's start like, what is digital project management? <laughs> Thank you so much for for welcoming me and for and for of course um, asking me these questions. So yes, digital project management is for. Projects themselves, remember projects have a start and end date. Digital projects typically are for the the goal of producing content, a product or services that are offered digitally online. Um, digital project management is about using collaborative online and cloud-based tools to coordinate people and stakeholders to meet your project's uh, goal within scope, on time and within a budget. <laughs> and if this sounds familiar to, to some of you, it's because in order to achieve all of that, it requires being flexible, adaptable. It requires leadership skills like communication and influence. So these are the aspects of project management that you'll find in job descriptions from assistance to product directors. If you don't see project management as a prerequisite qualification in the description itself, you'll see parts of it in there, such as communication strategy, engaging stakeholders, um, resourcing, procuring resources, and so on. That that was a lot. <laughs> it was a lot. <laughs> so that's why I'm so happy that you're here to help us unpack this and break it down. And before we we go further, and I know as the panel and our producers get ready with their their questions, thinking about projects that they've had that 
maybe things could have gone a little differently and in getting some of these tips from you, how did you you get to this space and, and digital project management? So uh, I, you met me a long time ago, Liberty, and my career started in journalism and news. I knew I wanted to be in that since I was 15 years old. Uh, that's what I studied in college. And I worked in di- news and digital, digital media for about 12 years. Um, in the middle of my career in media, I started being exposed to the tech industry. I even attended one of your festivals in Atlanta, Georgia, where I was learning about people creating content for YouTube and web series and things like that. So I'm looking at the tech industry and seeing how it's growing, how it's innovating, and just becoming more and more excited about it because I was curious and interested, passionate about the tools, the technology, the software needed to create digital content to manage that content. So I was working at Columbia University and I enrolled in a master's program in technology management there. Um, But as I was applying for jobs, I realized like, not only do I need to talk about the business skills, the theoretical things that I've learned in this program, but I need to show which of my existing skills are transferable so that I can go from news to tech. And I needed to structure those skills in a way that made sense for this industry. And as I was looking at what I'm good at, project management started to come up. And to kind of figure out, well, how do I structure this? Um, I learned about, well, you can get a project management certificate from the PMI Institute, the Project Management Institute. Um, And I did that. I got a PMP. I played up those skills and that knowledge and my experience with project management to get my first job in technology at Amazon. And it's also the skills that helped me um, get my promotion to my current program manager uh, role at AWS. So you you said some things there that just, you know, ringing a bell of, uh, and I think it might have also been when we spoke that there's PMI, but then you share just even in how when you're teaching or training around digital project management, some of the key elements like what makes a good project, because there's the, the hard line like, PMI standards, but then, right, doing it by the book, but then also whatever space that you're in, being able to successfully see your project from A to A to Z. If you can talk, talk through that and how you help people when they're either getting into this space and or if they're managing their own projects. Absolutely. I think a a common expectation for early career project managers is you join a team or you join an organization and you want to follow the book. (laughs) You want to do every, all the wonderful tools, frameworks, methodologies that you've learned um, from, from your courses, from your certifications. And, and pretty quickly you'll find that, you won't be able to, <laughs> at least not most of the of the tools that are used in the different phases of project management. So in my, uh, I have a course, it's a digital project management nano degree at 
the on the edtech platform called Udacity with a U. Um, and one of the things I talk about in this course is you got to get to know your organization and the people that you're working with. Um, I put in there a little like 10 question uh, project that if you go through the 10 questions that kind of helps you understand where you are, uh, the kinds of people you're working with, what what um, methods they're accustomed to, and then how do you adapt so you can find the best set of tools of project management to use in that situation. Um, I'm just letting you know, so so you're not disappointed if you go in there and you're trying to do every step in, in the project management stages and uh, uh, become disappointed that, oh, people don't want to follow this. <laughs> and... I, I told you that our community, we're very much like nuts and bolts. And, and that's why part of the reason I'm like really excited to have you here, that if you can even maybe share some of some case studies around project management or projects when people like, how do you get them back on track or even more specifically dealing with stakeholders? Like we all have stakeholders and the best way to do that. Absolutely. So um, managing stakeholders, that's a big thing I've been handling um, uh, over at AWS. So I joined a division that established a product management team for the first time. And there are the, almost 500 people in our our one division. AWS is enormous. So uh, we feel like a company inside a company. And a lot of the people from through surveys and through uh, anecdotal conversations in our division were skeptical, were not um, too familiar with, you know, what what exactly does product management do in this situation? How can you guys help us? So this team that I'm working with uh, develops and maintains internal tools for our technical people. Uh, so one of the leadership principles at Amazon AWS is to earn trust. And that's also, I would say, a principle for project management and change management, where you need to get to know who are the key stakeholders, who are the, who are the influential people, and who are the authoritative people, those who have the power to make decisions. Um, and talk to them, get to know their pain points. Uh, and, and here's an important thing that, that I learned. Be willing to get your hands dirty, roll up your sleeves. One of the important things I had to do in this organization was recreate the process of being onboarded like the others in my organization when they joined in and download or use the software that they use, the internal tools, get in there, learn it as much as possible, even if it's complicated. And if you yourself can't do something in particular, like maybe the team that you're on, our team of engineers. So I, I would not be able to go in there and start coding a bunch of things, but I could shadow someone um, and I could work with them for a week and just sit with them and ask them about their day-to-day -day goals. What are they trying to achieve? What are the tools that they're using? What are their frustrations and challenges? Um, and what are the things they think work well? What do they appreciate? What makes them happy? What makes them sad? <laughs> there are definitely ways to quantify this with UX research and data analytics. Um, and then there's the 
and the anecdotal way, that personable way. Um, and let me tell you, the interpersonal part goes a long way in earning people's trust. So uh, I love that you you said that, like not being afraid to like really get down and put yourself in the place of whatever team or whatever project to really understand each person's, you mentioned the pain points, but each person's role. And even if that means going the extra mile of recreating the steps so that you as the project manager can really have a great understanding of, uh, because people who are doing it are often doing it and might not see and know all of the steps that need to be put into SOPs or whatever the case may be. That's right. And one thing you'll find often when you are doing that initial investigation and learning of a team or an organization is almost everyone will say um, that their role is unique and their problems are unique. And you have to respect people and and, rec- and and listen to them with empathy and realize, okay, there probably is something here that is unique, but there also is something here that they may have in common with others in this organization or maybe in the industry, in the field. So um, listen, um, but then later on, you know, you're going to come back around to recommend, listen, here's the project I think we can implement to standardize a particular process um, so that we can make it more efficient. Um, and and you have to definitely use your research in these places. Like you said, these are your goals. Um, and here are some proven ways to meet those goals. Uh, so... <laughs> um, Make people feel important uh, because they are, especially if you care about solving their problems. Um, But uh, you're the project manager. You have the big picture vision of how understanding their needs is going to come together with the projects you're putting together in the organization. All right, Courtney. Yeah, thanks for coming, Elise. This is very interesting to me because I've I've never been one that could handle project management. I'm more of the entrepreneurial type personality and over-organization drives me up the wall. So I would always delegate those jobs to someone that is more oriented to project management and detail-oriented and, and organizational to handle all of that stuff because it would drive me crazy. Do you find that... Uh, a personality trait. So I, I'm more of a Steve Wozniak than a Steve Jobs, like an Apple. And that uh, I want to get things done and take things in a different direction, solve problems. And too much organization uh, drives me crazy because I feel it, it holds back innovation. But do you find that certain peak types of personality, it matters the type of personality someone is if they're detail oriented uh, or or entrepreneurial to be able to handle project management. And I know we have all these great tools now to simplify and streamline it. And it, of course, is necessary if you're, you know, developing a product and you have a timeline and a, you have to get the product out by a certain uh, by a certain date. You have to organize the project so that it comes out and delivers on time. Uh, but do you find that uh, finding skill, finding the proper people for those skills of project management can be difficult and you have to analyze the person's personality going in to, to make sure that they're right for that position? I wouldn't analyze the personality. I'd analyze um, how they think through their problems or in or, an organization's problems. 
Um, if you find the person is too detailed oriented to make quick decisions, they too they have to think things to a point that um, they need too much data for, for your team, for your organization, um, then yeah, that might not be a right fit. But then there's going to be another organization where that's exactly what they need. They need someone to bring in all the data, all the information and analyze it, break it down, come up with some reports and, and conclusions or recommendations. And, and that works for that industry. In tech, uh, we do a lot of agile product development, right? That's very common uh, when you're trying to put out apps and software and digital content that's got to go quick. So timelines, keeping the scope of those projects tight, that is something that a project manager should have the skill in doing. So it's a matter of uh, if you're if you're someone interviewing candidates, you want to make sure that they understand the pace of your organization and the level of information that you need to make decisions. So uh, another principle uh, at Amazon that we talk about is is bias for action. So bias for action is is you know don't get stuck in analysis paralysis. You have to make the best decision with best information that you have at the moment. Um, and part of being agile is making sure that you're making decisions that you could possibly pivot on later on. You know, the idea is you need to be able to continuously learn new information and keep making better decisions as you learn. Alex? How much do you try? I got a couple questions. This is really good. Oh, um, so no, it's, it's good. I, I worked. In, I've worked in a lot of pretty large corporations, or been a consultant. So I sit and I sit and be part of team, lots of different teams and lots of different companies. And so you see different, very different uh, project management styles. Uh, and uh, how much do you value? I guess customizing the tools for the people, or customizing the people for the tools. I would lean a little bit more on customizing the tools for the people, but people need to learn new things as well. So yeah. um, I'll give you an example. Um, I was working with a team of technical account managers who were having to balance closing out tickets. They're receiving all these tickets on a daily basis. Each ticket has a different level of severity and therefore a different timeline for when they needed to close those tickets. On top of that, they had to do projects, projects they needed to achieve and was good for anyone who was interested in being promoted. If you get certain projects under your belt, it makes you look good. You can make a case for you to get promoted. So this team was saying, I'm feeling overwhelmed. I have too many things going on. I don't know what's important. So I helped this team learn a little bit about project management and encouraged small behavior changes <laughs> that I felt they could take on. It's almost like dieting. You don't tell someone overnight, like quit all carbs, <laughs> um, which is 
not helpful anyway. Um, but you have to find these small places, small habits and tasks that people can take on um, on a day-to-day basis. And you have to constantly be there to um, remember change management is important with all of this to introduce the change, prepare people for the change, reinforce it and manage it on a long-term basis. So you don't just teach people how to fish and walk away. You stay with them until you see that this has become a standard practice. Yeah, because and I guess also in projects, how do you um, how much of a support staff do you build? So for some of the companies that I've worked in, the most the really the highest performance individuals will like Courtney will resist almost all organization, you know, because they're 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 thinking and everything is very fluid. And oftentimes we would con we would consider them. So there's like in any large organization, I mostly worked in the last 10 years, mostly Fortune 10, you know, so you're you're kind of field of that area. There's like 10 people in the company. If they left, the whole company would collapse. Like you, you they have 150,000 employees, but there's like yeah. 10 people that, and they're not usually C-suite. They're like, there's somebody that, there are these people that we call linchpins that kind of live inside that organization that connect all these different silos and everything else. And they will have, they will have none of it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like they're in meetings all day. They're just tying things together. And usually what ends up happening is, is they're given a, co- they're given an assistant and they're given a, and there's coordinators for each program and they, and almost all the information goes between the assistant and the coordinator about where they're going to be and how that's all going to work. And then they just kind of float around. And, and I've seen organizations that have not done that. They try to force them to like figure out how to use all the tools and they just end up either burying themselves into their office or, or leaving, <laughs> you know, like, you know, yeah. like it's, it's, you know, like that, you know, and, and because they just, you know, that's not what they, you know, they're, but they're usually the, the most useful people in the com- in the company. I mean, everybody's useful, but they're making these huge things and what, and the, the action of cutting that stuff together. So how much do you try to like with some people in, in the project, try to shield them from that and have them just be able to do them, you know? Mm. A great project manager is going to identify certain processes and mechanisms that can be that you can create a repeatable mechanism for um, and try to automate it as much as possible. Uh, You can use technology for that. You can create an SOP for that and training to go along with it. Um, But this coupled with engaging those stakeholders the ones that are like, don't talk to me about processes. I just want to see results. <laughs> Those are the people you need to be showing with data, with reports, with the evidence. Listen, when we make this, when we implemented this repeatable mechanism, this is how much things improved over time. This is how much better we got at achieving our intended results or our target goals. KPIs, project managers, have that tool. They can set up KPIs. So I mentioned- Can you define KPIs for- Oh, sure. Key performance indicators. So um, key performance indicators are a metric that you can track, that you can keep looking at and see how, whether your team or yourself or your product is reaching that number or overshooting or underperforming. Um, An example I'll give is- I mentioned earlier how I had this team that had tickets and those tickets, uh, we tracked 
the number of tickets that our team was able to close um, every week, every month, every quarter. Um, we had averages and we created a goal. Our goal is to reach 75% of our tickets close on time. Um, and we were able to track every month, every quarter, whether or not we were meeting 75%, we were under or over. And by looking at those numbers, I can then start to identify patterns and trends and dig into a root cause analysis of like, well, what, what is causing this dip here? It's always in this type of project or with this particular person. Um, and then you can then try to help and resolve that challenge, that place where the cause is happening. So did that That's answer great. your question? Yeah, hundred percent. One last question though, kind of hand back to Liberty. Um, how do you, do you ever, do you, how do you fight the, the, so I'm, I'm a data nerd. So I love looking at data about everything that, you know, graphs and processes, especially when I do events, it's like how many, but one of the things that we always have to fight is, uh, in our in our head is you know it's sometimes we can say you measure what matters but really what happens is what you measure becomes what matters and mm. it can be easy to miss things that are that are important but you stop paying attention to them because you are paying attention to the, you've set metrics you know KPIs and you you're focused on those and you're letting other things fall away because they're not being yet you know they're not being measured they're not important how do you kind of take that into account. Mm-hmm. Sounds like you have a prioritization problem. <laughs> well, I take a lot of things into account. So I'm, I'm a data. So I'll have, you know, when someone has something, I have huge amounts of data and I'll be looking at all of it. And, be, and, and I, that's how I fight it. But I, I don't have a, I don't have a necessarily a problem, but I do see organizations like even just YouTubers will spend a lot of time trying to focus on how do I grow their KPI is number mm -hmm. of followers um, or number of people watching their videos when that may not be the only, the the only thing that matters from a long-term, in a short-term perspective, that matters. In a long-term perspective, that becomes um, a kind of this overshadowing thing that doesn't let them sleep. <laughs> you know, so, so, yeah. it's, so it, you know, it's, it's just a matter of it. it, it I see it commonly uh, a problem. Working in the news industry, that was a constant conversation, uh, which is which stories are we going to put at the top above the fold? Is it going to be the ones with the most clicks? Or is it is it going to be the one that we think society needs? So um, I think the tech industry can learn from newsrooms and in, in using your judgment. And in, in newsrooms, it's called your editorial judgment. Uh, you have to have a set of principles and beliefs that you are going to abide by. So when you do have these um, these challenges or these forks in the road that you come up against where you say, I can do the thing that I think is going to get the most amount of clicks or the most amount of whatever it is, or I can do the thing that aligns with our philosophy uh, or our tenets. Um, I think that authenticity goes a long way for for businesses and for teams and for project managers in particular. Um, so hopefully going that route will be the, the winner for you, for your business goals. Um, but the other thing is also prioritization. Prioritization frameworks is something that is a very handy tool for project managers because 
you may have an organization or a leader come up to you and say, um, you know, here are here are all the things we care about and here are all the things that are problems. And the reality is you cannot tackle them all at once. You have to find ways to rank them Um People who work in agile software development often use tools like Jira and they use points and they can uh, rank things and prioritize and deprioritize every time they have sprint planning meetings. Um, If you're more in a waterfall type of environment, waterfall meaning your project is has to be built every single piece before you launch whatever is your end product or a service or project um, versus agile, which is you kind of release your project in pieces. Um, you iteratively improve upon it. Um, so if you're in a more waterfall environment, uh, you have to be thinking about um, what is going to help us launch this thing and still be able to adapt and learn as we keep going. That's great. All right. Thank you so much, Walisi. And let's jump into these questions. Absolutely. Our first one comes from David Brady in New York City. And David says, what tools are favored for project planning? That's a trick question. Favored by who? (laughs) (laughs) Um, it, It depends. Remember, organizations, large companies in particular, need to get licenses, enterprise licenses for software. So if you are trying to implement something like Asana, for example, you're going to make sure your your organization has the budget to get your however many people are in your organization on there. Um, so there are really awesome software like Trello, Monday.com, um, a lot of the Atlassian products, the Salesforce products. Um, if you are more in a PC world, nothing wrong with using Microsoft Teams and, and their project management products. Um, if you are very strictly in an engineering agile world, Jira is probably <laughs> the number one product out there. Um, if you are a small outfit, uh, maybe a small brand, YouTube brand agency uh, using Trello um, is is a really simple to, and it's actually a very pretty um, interface as well. Um, and then if you are scared of all, all these kinds of software and platforms that are out there, or um, they're not a good price point for you, hey, using spreadsheets, can work. <laughs> and I actually have in my uh, nano degree program in on digital project management on Udacity, I have a project on there where I allow people to practice putting together a project plan in a spreadsheet. So that is the most basic resource out there. And I do recommend trying to use the most basic way of creating a project plan because you have to understand what goes into a project plan in order for you to know, well, then what can I automate from here? Um, What kind of tool is going to meet the needs of my team or my company from here? Next question. Next one comes up to us from Mark Giuliani in Washington, D.C. In architecture and construction, there are many project management software solutions. Different team members have their favorite. It's hard to use one system for a project. Is the same true for event productions? Of course. Um, 
So very important to understand what are what is the kinds of information that you need to capture along the way um, and where do you need to store that? Um, what kind of timing do you work on? Is, is timing? Woo uh, so <laughs> if timing is important for uh, event planning, because I imagine that things have to, you know, you have to start your event on, on a, at a particular time and end at a particular time. So maybe you need some type of calendar type of tool or feature. So yes, there are project management software out there that is more geared towards a particular industry. So look what those are because they might have um, APIs, AI tools, automation tools that kind of help bring together the information, the data that you need for your particular type of projects. Um, and if you're not sure, like I said, start with the basic project plan, start with the spreadsheet, sp start with to-do lists, and then learn from there, analyze like what is the kind of information that I need to capture, that I need to have ready by a certain time in my project. Next question. Dave Troutman's up next from Edmonton, Canada, with one I'm going to be listening to. What are the biggest factors which contribute to scope creep? We're all listening. <laughs> uh, okay, scope creep. This this one is uh, a lot to do with personalities as well. Um, I'll, I'll give you a fun little story. When I was in graduate school, uh, you know, you got to have a lot of student projects, a lot of group projects, and we all know how we feel about doing group projects in school. There's always that person that feels like they're doing everything. And then people always point fingers as the one who's not doing anything, right? So at the very beginning of group projects, I would ask my, my other classmates, what grade would you like to get at the end of this project? And what grade do you think we're capable of getting at the end of this project? And you go around and you get everyone to say what grade they want um, and what grade they think they can get. And almost always everyone says, well, I want an A or I want a hundred <laughs> on this project. And so after understanding with your team, with your organization, what is that end result we're trying to get? What is that output? Um, then you can start to break down working backwards. All right, how do we get that? How do we get that? And we need to agree on how we get that. That is the most, um, that's the most high level way to get everyone to agree on your scope. Of course, there are tools where you can get more granular, more detailed for your team that is willing to get more detailed, um, like using a work breakdown structure, um, using your project management software to list out your tasks that the, or the deliverables that you need to achieve in order to get to that end result, that output. But it's all about getting people to agree at the beginning. Hey, do we agree? Uh, what the end result should be. Are we on the same page here? And then a project manager's part of their responsibility in engaging those stakeholders is to continuously check in with them and make sure that we stay on the same page to prevent them from coming and asking for additional things. 
So it's always going back to that agreement at the beginning. And of course, warning, don't be so close-minded that your project can't change and that you can't adapt, but be critical in asking, well, why do we need this change? Is it going to help us get towards that end goal or not? Um, and then if you are working at a larger organization, they have a formal project management office, a PMO. Um, you, they, they can, they probably have templates for change requests. So you can always ask people to do the paperwork and some, and submit a form or submit a ticket with their change request. And then your team can go through that prioritization conversation of whether or not that change request is a, a top priority or not. And uh, when you get people to do paperwork, that makes them, you know, think twice about whether or not to, to ask your team to change and, and increase that scope. Uh, loving the hacks, loving the hacks. Next question. <laughs> Next one comes to us from Roscoe Jones in Madison, Indiana. What should you do if a project falls behind schedule? All right. So when a project falls behind schedule, you have a couple of options. Your first option is you find your critical path in your project plan. The critical path essentially is when you look at your set of tasks and deliverables that you, you listed it out, you, you put together a really nice and neat project plan um, and you look at, all right, what can I cut out of this plan and still get to that end result and still be able to um, produce the value at the end of this project that we intended to produce. Um, so it's like cutting the fat. You start to see, you know, well, this task here, that's overkill. We don't need it. Take it out. And that starts to take out some of that extra effort and work in your project. Um, you can also talk about with your team, what are we willing to compromise on with the end results? Is there something that we can save for a next iteration for a fast follow? A fast follow is after you launch your product or project or service, you already have a plan in place to immediately start working on adding the features or making the improvements that you wish you could have had by your launch. Um, but you felt like actually it can wait a couple weeks extra um, and you just get it done right after you launch. Um, so those are a few options. Your final option is, is it okay to change the <laughs> the deadline of your project, um, you have to have a very good reason for doing so. Um, and it might be an advantage for your project or your team to do that. So look at the risks, look at the pros and cons of keeping the same timeline, but cutting out certain tasks or compromising on the end result versus changing the timeline, but keeping everything that you wanted to do for that project. Um, but then if you do uh, come out later, what are the repercussions on that for those stakeholders or for those customers who are expecting that project? Maybe there are financial implications. So those are the kinds of risks you have to analyze and think about. Next question. Next one comes to us from Dave Troutman in Edmonton, Canada. Are subject matter experts a help or a hindrance when implementing a project plan? They're super helpful. Subject matter experts 
um, really come in handy when you are creating that project plan in the beginning, because project managers are not going to know the details of how to execute certain types of tasks and projects. Um, uh, my day-to-day challenge, for example, is I do not have a computer science degree. Um, I have a technology management degree, which gives me just enough knowledge to speak a very similar language to kind of understand what my engineers are telling me. Um, but they're the ones that tell me, listen, to achieve this feature improvement on our website, for example, I need four hours of development time. So I would not have been able to guess the number of hours it would take to build out this uh, JavaScript or Web3 based feature. They're the ones who are going to tell me um, after they tell me they're you know, for using their expertise, then I can update the project plan accordingly. Oh, Alex, do you ever um, multiply their assumption by a certain factor? <laughs> <laughs> so, sweet. so, well, so, so what, what, a lot of times when I talk to somebody and they say it's going to take eight hours, what I put in somewhere in the project, I'm putting 12 hours or 16 hours because a lot of times, uh, my, even, even my content experts can be, um, optimistic, uh, you know, and, and, uh, while it, it does hurt at the beginning making those calculations, a lot of times things run a lot smoother when, uh, or more, Predictably. So uh, do you do that ever of applying a certain factor to what the assumptions are that you're given? I would say I would word it wisely <laughs> uh, and say that, all right, I am. You told me eight hours and I am going to add some time for risks, for contingency right. plans, for vacation days, um, <laughs> because that could happen. So that it's it's not that I don't trust what the person is telling me. I have to be prepared for all kinds of things that could come our way. So this has nothing to do with whether or not you think that person is being optimistic or or um, underestimating the amount of effort it will take. Um, this is about me being ready for what life is going to throw at us or for whatever disruptions can happen to to our project. Next question. Roscoe Jones in Madison, Indiana says, do you use PERT charts to identify potential bottlenecks or dependencies? I haven't uh, used PERT charts that much throughout my career, but um, definitely whatever type of project methodology uh, that you're using um, or, or method that you're using, you have to constantly be looking at your project plan. You have to be tracking the progress of the tasks. And if you have data on performance, be analyzing that data as well. Because as I mentioned in a previous story, um, what you want to be looking at in that information and that data is patterns and trends. Is there a particular type of task that constantly takes longer than what we originally estimated. Is there um, a particular 
team or function um, that is always comes across a challenge in order to achieve something. So once you identify those patterns, you actually pr- potentially identified a new project uh, to pitch to your leaders, which is, hey, we always have this challenge. I think that if we implement a project where we create a new mechanism or use a new tool or whatever the solution is, uh, we won't have that problem in the future. So um, identify those patterns, identify potential bottlenecks. If you see a potential bottleneck, that means you're, you are identifying a potential risk. You need to log it. You need to note it. You need to talk about it with your team and talk about how you can mitigate it. Next question. John Snyder in Reno, Nevada is up next. PM, Project Management, has its own specific and bespoke language. What are key tips to communicating between the project management team and the business? Yes, so I try not to get into jargon too much um, with my team because it's uh, the less amount of of extra thinking than I can have. I'm already asking my team to change their behavior in certain ways. So I don't prioritize getting my team to adopt PMI language. Um, I might use it in my language uh, occasionally as I'm trying to explain why we're doing something or how we're doing something. If they pick up on it, they start to sometimes imitate me and and how I use those terms. So that's great when it happens. Um, But oftentimes a project manager is trying to be, you know, in Rome with their team. So I'm trying to use their language and their terminology. If I see that there is confusion on what people mean, then that's where I might have to do a little educating. If there is a glossary that exists for your team, add the term in. If you don't have a glossary, maybe you want to create one, um, which might seem uh, a bit tedious, but it should be a collaborative document that your team works on together. Next question. Douglas Carmichael's up next. AWS publishes excellent post-event summaries after a major issue. In the heat of the moment during a significant event, how do you coach staff to also document their path or paths towards resolution? And he's got a link there. Yes. So documentation is a super important part of project management. Project managers are responsible for identifying documentation tasks and delegating or assigning that to the right people on your team. Engineers are coding things. They can write how to troubleshoot um, certain, whatever it is that they're building. Um, uh, Your leadership is making a decision um, how did they come to that decision? What information did they use? If they themselves aren't writing it, there's probably a team of people working with them that can help write that. So documentation needs to become just a natural part of your of your project. Um, for heat of the moment moments, there are some mechanisms. For example, when something goes wrong, you can write a correction of error, a COE, <laughs> um, or essentially it is a, a short, a brief memo or document where someone actually spends the time to investigate 
what went wrong, how, why, and the most important thing is to document how can this not happen again in the future? Come up with ideas or recommendations, um, potential new projects in there uh, in order to make sure that this thing does not happen again. So part of Continuous discovery um, is not just learning, you know, what are your customer needs, but it's also learning how do we work and how can we improve the way that we work. So um, they mentioned in that question something else is meeting at the end. So retrospectives, having those end of projects meetings or sessions where you talk about how everything worked out, what went right, what went wrong, how could we do things better, and then taking those ideas and making them part of your next project plan from the beginning. Um, document it all and, and store that knowledge. Next question. Peter Moore in Auckland, New Zealand is up again. Any Agile or waterfall and why? And explain the benefits of either for people that don't know. Sure. A bit of it. Uh, so the difference between waterfall and agile, an agile project is something that you can release the outcomes or outputs of it in bits and pieces, and you can improve upon it over time. A waterfall project is something where the end results only comes out when every single deliverable in the project has been completed already. Um, in my nano degree on digital project management on Udacity, um, I give multiple examples and analogies of waterfall and agile projects and students in the course also have um, the opportunity to practice with a hands-on project to build out both a waterfall and an agile project plan. Um, Liberty mentioned earlier the movie industry. I actually use a movie industry analogy, which is kind of a, a waterfall more type of project, um, although there are some ways to be agile in there. So it's about knowing exactly what you need to put out at the end um, and knowing what what the culture of your organization is like. So um, an example of something that should definitely be waterfall is if you have something that's confidential. Um, if it's, you know, really conf top secret IP for your organization and you don't want anything to leak out until it is done, um, that project should probably be waterfall. Um, if it is a, and typically digital products are, they come out of an agile environment, an agile project plan, um, because it is something like an app, a website, um, a, a, some kind of digital content that you provide online that you can work on a piece of it, release it to the public, and then get feedback from the public on your digital product or your, your digital content. And then the next uh, piece that you're going to release, you're going to learn from that feedback and produce something even better or produce something that adds more value on top of what you were already providing. Next question. Jeff Cohen in Miami Beach, Florida. How do you structure conflicting KPIs? Your example goal of closing 75% on tickets on time could encourage trading quantity versus quality. That's true. So 
This is a combination of having that prioritization talk and also the the data that I'm getting from my the work performance and from the projects is not just that closing ticket number. It's also the categories, what were the types of problems? And we have regular meetings with, um, or I like to host regular meetings in a more agile environment. You tend to have daily standups that are very quick in a more waterfall place. You can have longer meetings where you have more in-depth conversations. And every now and then you should, even in an agile place, you should always make some time for an in-depth conversation, um, whether it's you know, uh, by monthly or quarterly basis um, to look at the quality of the product or the service of the work going into a project. So pay attention to how your customer or your target audience is receiving that work. Um, And you'll see that if you are, and this is similar to another question we talked about earlier, if you if you see that the quality of your work is degrading because you're focusing a little too much on meeting a particular number, like similar to tasks in our projects, you need to talk about the risks there and the priorities there. Is this a KPI that's worth having? Maybe you need to adjust the KPI or maybe you need to swap it out for something else. It's okay to be critical of of this, um, but you need enough time and evidence to be able to make that determination. So really making sure that they're both quantitative and qualitative in your analysis um, is what I hear you saying to make sure you can have that balance. Exactly. Uh, you know, going back to the fun using editorial judgment analogy, what we can learn from from the news industry is that we understand that just putting out content that's about clicks just becomes clickbait. Um, you're produ- you're significantly reducing the quality of that content potentially, um, and therefore you have to balance that out. You use your judgment. Um, and you can use other methods of um, of learning from your audience or your target customer of how is the quality of our work impacting them? How is it meeting their needs? So we do a lot of surveys, a lot of scoring, ranking. You can do CSATs. You can do uh, max diff surveys. Um, if you're not familiar with these survey types, you probably can find someone in your in your team or your organization that is a researcher that's, that this is what they do um, so that you can learn from those people who are receiving your work, uh, is this still meeting your needs? Is this still bringing value? If not, maybe it's time to pivot. Next question. Douglas Carmichael's up next. MPC, a major visual effects house, has introduced a red, amber, green system where workers on troubled projects must spend more work days in studio. In your experience, has remote working been a hindrance in getting troubled projects back on track? Hmm. Okay, so really we're asking about virtual work and whether that's good or bad. Uh, In the digital project management space, working virtually and remotely and working with 
teams that are all like people who are all over the world, this is normal. This is common. You have to know how to work with people in this new type of world, essentially. So um, one of the challenges is getting people coordinated when they're living in different time zones. So we have to identify times of the day where we can create team meetings that work across most time zones. Um, I did have a team where I had a few members in, on the West coast of the USA. So in either Seattle or California. And then I had a lot of members of my team in India and in the IST time zone. Um, and there were, there was a very narrow window of when we can have team meetings, but we made a pact that we needed to be able to ensure that our team could regularly get together. So this time slot here in your week, save it for these team meetings. And if you want to have one-on-one -on -one meetings with other people, or if you want to have dedicated hours in your day so you can focus on your particular tasks, you do it outside of that, that slot so that we can always make sure that our team has the opportunity to get together. And uh, as a project manager, by the way, I do a lot of one-on-ones. I'm constantly meeting people and checking in with them. I meet them at the very beginning of a project. I meet them when they get started on their tasks. I meet them in the middle of it. Um, I get the team together. I ask people, how are they feeling? How are they doing? And then at the end, meet people again, one-on-one -on -one and together to, to you know, contemplate about the project as a whole. And throughout that time, if they, if I notice that people are unmotivated or falling behind, you nip it in the bud if you can, which is why you're constantly communicating with them from the beginning um, to identify what is it that's causing this person to fall behind um, and how can I help them? Maybe it's a matter of you need additional resources. Uh, maybe you need an extra engineer on your team. Um, maybe this person is burnt out and they need a break. <laughs> so en encourage people to take breaks and, and vacations. Um and the other thing is sharing knowledge and keeping everyone's work visible. So if you are working remotely, virtually, if you have members of your team around the world, you want to make sure that the work that everyone is doing is visible to each other. That's one of the advantages of using project management software like Asana or Rike um, and so on is because anyone can go into the project board and see what tasks are in progress and how close or how far we are. Um, to to getting to the end goal. I also create status reports. So the red, amber, green is a very useful tool in status reports. Uh, these are reports that I put together in email or publish in an internal wiki for teams so that they can see um, the big picture. Is this, is this project as a whole off track for meeting our final deadline? Is it at risk, but kind of on track, that'd be yellow, or is everything going good so far? And that's green. Um, and you, your goal as a project manager is to not let it get to red. If things, individual tasks themselves start to fall into yellow, that means your project is falling into yellow. So you attack each risk um, on its own, if you can. Um, 
or as a whole, if that makes more sense, and avoid as much as possible going into red. Um, my Udacity Digital Project Management course, we talk a lot about risk management, and I do list several strategies on how to deal with risk um, in my course, and, and hopefully there's a strategy in there that works best for whatever project you're on. All right, next question. Next one comes from Roscoe Jones in Madison, Indiana. The top 10 in project management software, according to Forbes.com, are ClickUp, Monday.com, Asana, Zoho Projects, Smartsheet, Notion, Airtable, Teamwork, Rike, and Jira. Has uh, our guest gotten an opinion on the list? I've used most of those. Um, and it, as I've mentioned before, it depends on your team, the culture of your team and what they're willing to adopt. So if you are working with an organization where the majority of people have been on JIRA, I may not find it worth it to rock the boat and get them to move to another tool. If you have a team that's used no tool at all before, uh, before adopting um, one of those tools or one of the, those software, I'm going to just you do it manually first, just to see what is it that our team knows how to do uh, habitually already. Because once you adopt that software, um, you want to be able to put in those habits into that software and automate them. Um, and then there will be any time you have to introduce a new software, a new tool for a team, there will be behavior change. So you have to evaluate how much change is that going to be for your team? Um, I'd like to be somewhere in the middle. Too much change is probably going to fail. Uh, too little change, my team is not going to become more efficient. So find that middle ground. That is such an amazing point to to just even close on before I give you the floor of just the balance of understanding your team. Well, Lisa, you've given us so many points and tips, and I know that I've got to go back and replay this so that I can be better <laughs> at managing and managing my team and my crew. But before you go, first of all, thank you so much. Is there one parting? I always ask for like one parting gem or something that you've shared that you just want to remind us. Uh, as it relates to creating better digital projects? Yes. Um, I have asked several executives as, as, as I would interview for jobs um, or get ready for promotion, you know, what are the most important skills uh, for this program management role or for this senior project management role or even some kind of a leadership role. And almost always they would say um, being a leader, having communication skills, knowing how to influence your team. Those are some of the key skills um, that goes into being a good anything. <laughs> so I think it applies in project management as well. Um, for those of you who are more, um, uh, detail oriented and super organized and you like to coordinate everything, it can be kind of anxiety inducing to try to put all this time and effort in creating the perfect project plan and you realize people aren't following it to the letter um, or, mm -hmm. or there's too many risks, too many disruptions happening and it keeps changing everything. Uh, so 
be open-minded and be flexible. It's not about the project plan. It is about the people you are serving. So I think take it back to, you know, you're a leader. You have to care about the people you are serving um, and you have to empathize with them and you have to be cognizant of the end goal and how can you work collaboratively with your team to get to that end goal. So hopefully that reduces the anxiety a little bit for those people and for those who don't like to follow any kind of project plan, <laughs> um, helping your project manager understand that that's important will, you know, maybe create a symbiotic relationship between the two of you where you help them get in touch uh, with their customer and they help you get in touch with the project plan and uh, you'll be a more effective team together. Well, they say Almeida, thank you, thank you, thank you to our producers for all of your fantastic questions today. Thank you and our panelists for your contributions and your insights. And of course, our production team, our back end team for without which any of this would not be possible. Just a quick reminder that tomorrow we've got 3D Productions, the overall pipeline with Alan um, Hawks will be here. And then we also have a lab tomorrow too, the show workshop. You can find all of these details at officehours.global or please make sure you're signed up for the mailing list and just to remind everyone we have traveled today's show has traveled 106 106,977 miles that's 172,162 kilometers that's more than 847 million bananas for scale that is 4.3 times around the earth. Thank you all. We'll see you in after hours. Have a good one. Great hour. Thank you, Alicia. Beautiful job. That's great. Yes. The comments are like everywhere. There's so much conversation about waterfall and agile and going back and forth. <laughs> no, That's we awesome. ordered more bananas if we didn't have a project management on this. <laughs> Where, where can I see the comments? Oh, they're in Mugano. Um, well, we'll send you a link. I don't know if it'll be deleted. Oh, head out. We, we whisper that, yeah, you can. Thank you so much. Thank you all. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Great job again, Liberty. Oh, why am I always <laughs> in the mode? <laughs> That's it. I'll see you Bye. later. Bye-bye.